I remember calling my wife and just saying, I just got a phone call from Alexander Payne. And she said, what? <laughs> and I said, yeah, he read my script and I think he wants to direct it. And she said, what? <laughs> I said, yeah, I know, right? But I remember walking down the hill and thinking, I think this changes things. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Andrew Cohn's on the show. Andrew is an Emmy Award-winning filmmaker and screenwriter. His most recent film is The Last Shift, which he wrote and directed, starring Academy Award nominee Richard Jenkins. Shane Paul McGee, and Ed O'Neill. The film was executive produced by two-time Academy Award winner and film legend Alexander Payne. You probably remember Alexander from his films The Descendants with George Clooney, About Schmidt with Jack Nicholson, Election, Nebraska, and Sideways, among others. The Last Shift premiered at Sundance this year, where it was picked up by Sony Pictures and released last week in theaters. I was lucky to see The Last Shift at Sundance, where I interviewed the film's production designer, Audrey Sirawat, but I wasn't able to connect with Andrew, so it was great to talk to him last week, right before the film's theatrical release. Andrew cut his teeth in the documentary world, with films like Medora, produced by Steve Buscemi and Stanley Tucci, for which he won an Emmy. He went on to direct a series of compelling documentaries, including The Warriors of Liberty City, produced by LeBron James. The Last Shift is Andrew's first narrative feature, but you would never know it given how adeptly he subtly weaves themes of race, class, and identity into beautifully comedic yet tragic performances from the cast. In this interview, Andrew talks about how his approach to documentary filmmaking helped him transition smoothly into narrative features, how he was able to learn the craft of screenwriting and filmmaking without ever going to film school, how he was able to shoot The Last Shift in 20 days and come in under budget, how he was able to secure A-list talent and producers on his first narrative feature, and how Alexander Payne got involved in the project, which was a burning question for me going into the interview, because I'm a huge fan of Alexander's work. For me, Andrew's approach to filmmaking is inspiring because it's not centered around preparing to become a filmmaker with film school or master classes or books. Andrew just jumped right in and did it, in a very trial-by-far way, learning through mistakes, but also through friends and colleagues he met on that journey. Very early in his career, he worked with some of the most talented actors, producers, and crew in the business. And I think the importance he placed on professional relationships put him on an incredible trajectory in the film world. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat with Andrew Cohn. Hey, Andrew. Hey there. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. It's good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for uh, making time for me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. Um, I'm sorry we didn't get to connect at Sundance. Oh, you were so busy there. I was? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Like, I'm sure you were just uh, inundated with, with press there. It feels so long ago. It does. It, it feels like um, an eternity ago and also... There's this, I don't know, this sense of like that may have been the last festival where it was this COVID free 
feeling of anything is possible and we can go anywhere we want and there's no restrictions. And I don't know when we're going to get back there. I think maybe you should print those t-shirts. Sundance 2020, the last film festival ever. <laughs> it really was the last <laughs> film festival. I mean, it's just in fact, I think I read an article where there were COVID positive people at the festival. And it's one of the theories of how it spread worldwide because of all the people that were there. I was deathly ill when I was at Sundance. And I am curious of whether I had COVID back then. I, I, hadn't, I didn't have, I haven't had the, I've been tested since then, but I haven't had the, what's it called? The, the antibody test. The antibody test. But I don't know if you remember, but here in Los Angeles, there were large swaths of people that were getting sick the month up till that. And this is before COVID was, was coming out. And, and I was told that I, you know, had um, bronchitis, but, you know, I, who knows? Yeah. And as I was listening back, I went and listened back to the Audrey Sirawat interview to yeah. prepare for your interview. And I'm listening to my, my breath and my, uh, I was trying to hold back coughs in the microphone. Yeah. And I was like, wow, I was sick back then. <laughs> so, uh, and it was toward the end of the festival when that interview took place. So it makes sense that maybe I caught something there. She's fantastic. I, I can't even speak highly enough about the job she did. She's so brilliant. And, uh, yeah, you know, a funny story. I, we were looking, we were looking for production designers and Audrey was, you know, in Chicago, which is where we shot the film. That's where she's based out of. And I got on a call with her and I said, oh, you know, where do you live? And she said, well, I split time between LA and Chicago. And I said, well, where are you now? And she said, oh, I live in LA. I'm in LA right now. We, we, we live two doors down from each other. Oh my gosh. And didn't know it until we met when I randomly interviewed her for the job. So. That's crazy. And uh, I agree. I mean, she is a very impressive creative from the standpoint that not only is she just super talented, but she's so understated and modest the way she talks about her own skill set and the way she talks about luck and fate. And, you know, there's, I, I don't think she attributes a lot of her success to her own uh, talent necessarily, which is, is a testament to her character. You know, that's very Midwestern of her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm from Michigan. And, and yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, we certainly connected that way as you always want to push the credit you know, as you should to others, you know, and I think that she, we just had a great connection from the beginning and both wanted to make the same movie. And um, she understood the textures and the, the, the energy that I wanted the main space to be, but yeah, she's so kind and she's so sweet and she's just a great collaborator, but yeah, you know, I mean, I think um, her work speaks for itself. And I think that that's the kind of way, the way I approach, you know, my career is like, I, I love my work and I really like enjoy the process and everything else that comes after it is great, but I almost just would rather allow the films to speak for themselves. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting how you, you phrased that. I want to allow the films to speak for themselves. I was interviewing a director recently named uh, Tommy Avalone, who directed the, the Bill Murray stories documentary and, um, ghost heads and uh he's, he's done some fun stuff but he talked about this concept of sales like if you're a producer or a director you're expected to a certain degree to sell your work and this is why you should watch it this is why you should make this or help me make this and he said um 
that he just is terrible at it. And he's just yeah. not, not interested in that aspect of it all. And so when people <laughs> ask him, uh, why should I watch this film or why should I help you make this? He's, he says, you know what? Don't bother. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, it's also when people ask me to dissect my work, you know, or to like be critical or to, to analyze my own work, you know, what does it mean? Or what are you, what stories are you interested in? And I can try, but it's, for me, filmmaking is such a spiritual thing. And I don't mean that in like a religious sense, but it's just such an instinctual thing of like how I feel in the moment, how I, what I'm interested in, that it's hard for me to go back and, and yes, I'll find some themes that I'm interested in, but I'm really interested in characters and just seeing the world through their eyes and really allowing the audience and asking questions, not pretend, you know, not pretending to provide any answers for some mm-hmm. of these larger societal questions, but really letting an audience come to a decision on their own, you know, about right. how they feel about the movie, how they feel about these characters. And I think that that's important for me. And I, you know, I, I kind of get frustrated in these a lot of times when I do the Q and A's afterwards of people, you know, ask me questions that I, I hope that it, the movie answered for you. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, um, yeah, well, I think good art is supposed to provoke and evoke certain emotions and questions, but not answer things for the audience. Exactly. Um, and and that's, that's what I liked about The Last Shift is there was not an agenda of any kind in terms of, you obviously have this intersection of race and class and identity that these themes of race and class are are clear but they're not agenda driven they're very just character driven and you feel this heartbreak for these characters because of the situations that they're in and their own inability to be self-aware enough to see their own shortcomings you know what i mean yeah i mean i think that that's came a lot from my documentary work which is that i really when I started making documentaries, I was really interested in just telling stories of regular people, you know, sort of living on the outskirts of society. Those were the films that I was really attracted to and I loved and, you know, Hoop Dreams and Harlan County and, and Go Down the Line. And one of the things I realized when I started making films is I wasn't really interested in, in finding a sort of a, a social issue and then, f- and then somehow searching for faces and, and people to kind of um, explore that social issue through, which you, I, you see a lot in documentaries. What I was more interested in is finding really interesting human stories and then listening to those stories and letting the themes and issues come out through them organically. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, whenever, and it's the same with my narrative, you know, um, process in terms of writing, I'm really interested in interesting characters and interesting worlds, and then listening to those characters and letting the themes sort of bubble up organically. So I had an idea for Stanley, the main character. You know, I wanted to do something about this aging fast food worker who kind of takes pride in his job, and there's something kind of funny and sad about that, you know, and this kind of generation of people that are in some ways left behind. You know, I would see like the clerk working at Walmart and and just think what their lives were like. But the themes of like, white victimhood and like um like you identified class and race they really didn't start to bubble up until i until i really started exploring the character and thought how would he think of this what if he was in this situation what would he say what would he do 
and that goes into the backstory and everything else. But I really just started from a purely character standpoint and then really listened to like where he wanted to go and what, if he was in this particular situation, you know, what, what would happen. And that's where the themes kind of bubbled up. I didn't sit down thinking, I want to write a film about white victimhood. Well, who can I, you know, who, who are some characters that can be mouthpieces, you know, for the, for both sides of whatever argument, it was a much more Mm -hmm. sort of organic process for me. Yeah. I think the, um, the duality of man is something that I, I'm fascinated by uh, this this the concept that we're all capable of good and evil we're we're all capable of um massive flaws affecting other people like with the case of Stanley and in the high school and I won't give it away but there's an incident in high school that is talked about in the film where they could have handled a situation differently and they didn't he and his friend Ed O'Neill but that duality of man and especially with the Javon character too, I think it would be easy as a screenwriter to write in Javon as this heroic character who is being held back by the system and he just needs to find a way for someone to help him shine and become who he is. But he's flawed himself. I mean, he can't even connect with his own child and he's he's not able to empathize with his uh, girlfriend's situation and so you have these characters in the last shift that they're sympathetic but they're also kind of aggravating at the same time and it brings out the humanity in these characters and makes them i hate using the word authentic but it's more authentic that way than if you paint it out like maybe a movie producer in hollywood would want you to tell this story if that makes sense yeah i think that that I hope that that's true, you know, and I think that that comes a lot, a lot of the films that I was influenced by, you know, Alexander Payne, who, you know, crazy story, how he ended up being an executive producer on this movie, but he's always been someone whose work I've like deeply admired because he put forwards, puts forward these flawed protagonists, you know, and mm-hmm. you see Paul Giamatti in Sideways, you know, you see um, George Clooney and the Descendants, these guys that are kind of, bumbling their way through life and the absurdity of it. Right. But they're, they're, they're deeply flawed characters They're they're, you know, a lot of, a lot of ways fucked up, um, which most of us are. And I think it comes from his really gravitating towards, I think a lot of European cinema and you see a lot of anti-heroes and things like that. And so I, I always, you know, I always just was attracted to those types of films and, you know, I don't know if it breathes a depth sort of humanity into them, but or authenticity, but I think it certainly makes them more relatable, I would hope. You know, I, I think ultimately we go to the movies because we want to see people like ourselves. And I try to find those universal um attributes in all of my characters. It's like we've all kind of felt like Stanley at some point and said something we didn't really mean and have regrets and you know, um not that everyone can relate completely to him, but, or like Javon. I mean, there were certainly times in my life where I felt lost and didn't have a, you know, didn't feel like I had anything, wasn't sure what I was supposed to be contributing and, you know, was irresponsible and was trying to find my way in life. So. Yeah. And I, I think too, with a character like Stanley, what, what is so, 
what's the word that I would use to describe Stanley? He Stanley is a character that we may not see ourselves in him, but we've seen him, we've met him before. Right. See and, him on the bus or right. passing or have an uncle or yeah. and, and you realize when you see what his social skills are and what his his uh, emotional intelligence is, you understand why he is where he is, why he's in 38 years in a fast food restaurant. He thinks he's funny. He's not. <laughs> and that's <laughs> he's kind not of quite all there. You right. Know? <laughs> and that kind of creates a humor in and of itself where the awkwardness of, ooh, when someone tells a bad joke and you're like, uh, you kind of feel embarrassed for him. Um, and then you, you really scripted that brilliantly where you wrote in these, or I don't know if some of it was improv or if it was all in the script, but there's no improv in the movie. Just very like these mixed metaphors and these these weird um, laughs at the end of his <laughs> his uh, statements. That was Richard. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah. I'm sorry to cut you off. I just have to give so much re- respect to Richard Jenkins, who yeah. is just unbelievable in this role. But yeah, sorry. Yeah, he, he really pulled it off. But But the script, the way that these jokes were written, the way that these riffs were written, makes everyone understand why he is where he is. So it totally makes sense that he'd be there for 38 years. And then where it goes from there and how it ends, and I won't give it away, but there really is no wrapping it up in a Hollywood ending, like a feel-good ending. And that's there's some beauty to that. There's just It's a heartbreaking beauty because that's the way life is. Rarely do you see um, a saga wrap up so clean and nice like you see in a typical Hollywood film. Yeah, I mean, one thing I would I love is the, the comedy's ability to sort of, um, I don't know, there's a, there's a way to get to truth in comedy that is, it's hard to get any, any, any way, other way. You know, mm-hmm. I really love like disarming people with some of the comedy to bring them in as like an entry point and then sort of laying bare some some hard, honest truth. Um, you know, in terms of the ending uh, and, you know, I, I wanted it, it goes back to the original my original sort of process, which is, you know, what would Stanley actually do in that situation? You know, and I think a lot of times I was you know, talking with my producers, a lot of, a lot of my collaborators we wanted to make this sort of anti-green book, you know, like mm. what is this, what are these relationships actually like? And to take a very familiar premise, which is a sort of black and white two-hander where, you know, it's like the white guy teaches the black kid responsibility and like the black guy teaches the white guy how to loosen up, you know, and like take, like what if you took that and just totally flipped it on its head mm. and made something that was just more honest, you know, just like a little bit, not a little bit, but just more nuanced and honest about the world that we live in. And, and these two people that are seemingly worlds apart on the surface, but when you actually, and this is what the movie I hope does get into the politics and get into where they stand in the world, actually have much more in common than mm. you would think and much more to gain by coming together rather than these political forces that are constantly pulling them apart. Right. Yeah. That, I think that's a powerful message in the film and it's definitely not an agenda item 
but it certainly is a takeaway that they, if they would just see beyond their own, their own shortcomings, and this is more on Stanley than it is Javon, but because I think Javon was ready to be open to learning from Stanley, whatever he had to offer. But, <laughs> you know, Stanley, Stanley just wasn't there and, and probably was just emotionally incapable at that, in that last scene of doing anything other than what he did. Yeah. And, and it's interesting too, going back to your documentary background, I watched um, Medora and the first four episodes of the Warriors of Liberty City. And there's some parallels, I think, between The Last Shift and these documentaries in how you explore character and how you really don't focus on the importance of the, the neat ending that's tied up in a bow. What it does for me as a viewer is it just adds a lot of emotion because you're seeing, especially in, in, in the Medora documentary, these are some of the most downtrodden. I mean, these people are living hard, hard lives, and there is almost no hope that they're going to make it out of this town. And if they do, whatever has happened to them in this town is going to be, they're going to be burdened with that trauma <laughs> their, their whole life. And I, maybe I'm overstating it when I say trauma, but there, it is a tough tough life that they're living in this small town and you just kind of lean into that despair and and follow these kids around and their their mothers and their uh, deadbeat dads and you realize that the story isn't about whether they're going to in a hoop dreams type of way <laughs> you know win the the state title at the end, that's not what it's about. And so you're not getting that neat ending and you're, the payoff is not going to be there in that way. But the payoff is understanding these characters like you will not understand any other filmmaker's attempt to show their humanity. Yeah, it's about, it's about getting to know people and walking in their shoes for 90 minutes and getting right. invested in them. You know, And I think that I remember when my co-director and I uh, you know, would watch their games and just for your audience, it knows it's a documentary about a high school, uh, the worst high school basketball team in the state of Indiana. It's in this very downtrodden town uh, called Medora, Indiana, about 500 people. I remember watching the games and I hadn't won a basketball game in a couple of years. And the, the movie's kind of about them trying to break this losing streak, which the stakes couldn't be lower. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> like, whether they win a game or not, it makes no difference in the grand scheme of things, right? Um, but I love those stories. You know, I love, it's about the small victories. It's about, I just remember watching the games after being there. You know, I lived there for six or eight months when we were filming. And towards the end, they'd get so close and they'd lose. And I, and I, I, would, I was so emotionally invested and I was behind the camera. And I just kept telling Davey, if we can get the audience to feel how we feel, they're going to root for this team, you know, as much as we are. And, and that was always the approach of like, you know, just presenting, again, these characters and all their warts and all their flaws. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I love that kind of bittersweet feeling you have at the end of a movie where 
I will give away the ending. They win the game. They win a game and they break the streak. And it's an incredibly joyous moment. They go for a ride around the town on top of the fire truck. Right. But there's a sadness to it too, that this is maybe the highlight of their lives. This is it. And um, I think there's, that's been a kind of a through line. And I think that that goes back to just wanting to tell American stories. And I think that America has such a bittersweet, there's things that are heartbreaking about this country. And then there's things that still, in my opinion, make it the greatest country in the world, you know, Mm -hmm. which is like an unpopular thing to say, but, you know, we are deeply flawed, you know, but people are striving every day to be better and to progress their lives and they make mistakes and it's messy, but like in pursuit of that, I think there's such great honor. Yeah. You know? So how, how did that Medora story come together and you, your involvement with Steve Buscemi and, and Stanley Tucci as producers? Um, it was pretty, we, I, my co-director Davey, who I've known since forever, we grew up together. Uh, he sh- showed me the article, which was by John Branch, um, who's a great art, writer, writer for the New York Times. He had written the article about this town. And Davey and I just looked at each other and just knew that this is it. This is the movie we were born to make. You know, Davey Rothbard, right? Davey Rothbard, yeah. Okay. And we had never made a film before that. You know, I'd done a short and Davey was doing Found Magazine, but just felt like this is it. We moved there and, uh, yeah, like I said, lived there for six months making the movie. And really that was kind of like my film school was just making that movie from beginning to end and shot it and did a lot of editing on it. A woman that Davey and I went to high school with named Rachel Dankies. Um, she was a producer on the film. She worked for Steve and Stanley's company. Oh, okay. And, and showed them some of the footage very early on and said, I'm doing this little documentary with a couple of buddies I went to high school with. And, you know, Steve just was very, especially Steve was very taken with the kids, you know, and, um, and yeah, just kind of snowballed from there and, you know, put a lot of time and, and, you know, that movie was not a straight line, you know, it was a lot of, going back and forth to Medora and really learning on the fly. But at the end, the movie did really well. I went on to win an Emmy and sort of launched my career as a full-time filmmaker. Yeah. And the through line, I think, uh, takes you all the way to Warriors of Liberty City as well, where you're, you're not necessarily focusing on any particular outcome. Although I'm only, I'm only four episodes in, so maybe, maybe it's no, going to change. Right, though. Yeah, no, you're right. Maybe it will be a hoop, hoop dreams in episode six, but the depth of your exposing what is happening behind the scenes with these families and the struggles that they're going through. Same thing with Medora, uh, with uh, the Warriors of Liberty City. There's just this immense amount of humanity that comes out of seeing what's happening behind the scenes. And you have you know, polar opposites in terms of, you know, you have, you have the garbage truck driver and I forget his name, but he's George, the, yeah. the head, the head coach of boom squad. And then you have the guy that ripped the, the, the uniform off his son after a oh, game yeah. because he was pissed off at a call that was made. Yeah. And he, really, oh, he's really struggling too, but they all have, it's like, you know, the duality of man, you, you have this capacity for being super um, annoying, but also charismatic and, you know, engaging. And you, you care about all of these people despite their flaws, but you really empathize, especially with these kids who are just freaking adorable kids who are 
in this situation where this might be the only way out of a really bad economic situation is sports. And at least that's what I'm, what I'm taking away from it so far in the first four episodes. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a power in just sticking your nose in there and showing what people are, how people are living. You know, I think that you don't need to explain it. You don't need statistics. You know, you don't need to give a lot of backstory. I think audiences, especially American audiences, watch a lot of TV and, and, and digest a lot of media. They're very savvy. You know, they, once they're in the room with these people, that they can pick up on these internal conflicts, mm-hmm. you know, and, and things that you typically see, you know, on a societal level, you see on the news or you see people talking about it, you know, politically. But when you really just open the back door of some guy's apartment and go inside and see what's really going on, these statistics and these, um, you know, these larger social issues become much more palpable, you know, than when you really get to know somebody and understand what they're going through. and. Uh, as I said, hopefully see some of yourself in, in these people. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place, our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. So your background is creative writing in college, right? Yeah, yeah. I I initially went to school. I wanted to be an English teacher. That was my that was my goal, and uh, got sidetracked originally as as doing doing screenwriting, and then had some minor successes uh, after college in Los Angeles, and got frustrated and turned to documentary just because I sort of lacked the resources to to get my foot in the door and I probably lacked the patience too to get in my foot in the door on the narrative side at that time and turned to documentary and then fell in love with the form. Well, it's, it certainly seems to be a more accessible um, way of making movies uh, when you can just kind of find a story somewhere and, uh, and grab a camera. But how did you learn the the skill set and lenses and cameras and editing. I mean, you did not go to film school, right? No, I didn't go to film school. Um, I think one of the things that I learned really early on is that I I I wanted to lean into my strengths, um, and I wanted to surround myself with collaborators who could make up for my weaknesses, and so. You know, I really, from my creative writing background and, and doing screenwriting too, you know, I wrote three or four, maybe five screenplays, really bad, but, you know, it was really learning really the nuts and bolts of storytelling, you know, and character development and structure and really had a good grasp on those things. Um, so I knew I had that and kind of how to structure a story and and develop characters. I I felt confident in that. And, and I, you know, to be honest, Davy Rothbart, you know, he he's a little bit older than I was and is a very, was a very seasoned, you know, he did a lot of stuff with This American Life. And he, he really, I don't think you can really, you know, he was a kind of a mentor for me and, you know, is my best friend, but he taught me a lot. Um, and then, you know, I think um, 
you know, applying what I had learned in screenwriting to my documentary work. I always just love talking to people. I mean, it was just, you know, my wife will get frustrated with me now because we'll stop at some gas station and I'll be talking to the attendant, you know, for 10 minutes about whatever happened in the football game earlier. I've just always been, just had a curiosity about people. And so I knew that I was like, I wasn't afraid to get like, get my nose in there and just talk to people. And then, and if I had a camera, you know, I was able to kind of put people at ease and, you know, I, I have like a pretty humble background and I think that people see that in me. They don't see like a big Hollywood guy who's going to come in and, you know, feel like I can gain people's trust and disarm them um, in a way that's like sincere and genuine. I think, you know, people want to tell their stories. They do. They want to tell their story about how they see the world and, and their hopes and their dreams. Um, some people, it takes a lot more work to get them to the place where they feel vulnerable, will be vulnerable, you know, will let you in. And I feel like that's my job as a documentary filmmaker, you know, where you put the camera and what lens you use and what kind of lights we, you know, like that, that stuff didn't really interest me. It does now that I have, you know, more grasp on the other things. But I remember even Alexander Payne, you know, like when we would talk about the last shift, he would say, you know, one of the pieces of advice he gave me, which I knew early on and, and figured out was like, you know, a film set is like a construction site. You know, it's just, there's madness going on everywhere. There's people running around and people asking you questions, but at the, in the center of it is this like really, really magical thing happening, which is the relationship between the camera, the actor, and yourself. And you have to protect that. And I think I've always had that mentality of like, when I would go in and even doing Warriors of Liberty City, which was a pretty big production, it's always about blocking everything out and making the connection with the human being. And that's what I've really taken pride on is like putting the relationships forward um, and being a good collaborator too. You know, I think that like my, my instincts as a filmmaker are not to jam my ideas down everybody's throat. Like that's just not fun <laughs> for me. And I've been on the other side of it. It's awful. Yeah. You know, I feel like my job is to like, again, know my strengths and my weaknesses and then surround myself with people and really empower them to bring themselves um, to the process. The Alexander Payne connection that you have is just from an outsider looking in, amazing. Just the opportunity to on work. the inside looking out, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, I mean, when I was preparing for this and I saw that Alexander was attached to the, the project, The Last Shift, uh, and that he was actually going to direct it at some point uh, and decided not to because of other obligations. I was like, okay, how did that happen? But more importantly, what does it mean to you as a filmmaker to have access to that type of talent and creativity to help move your projects forward? It means everything. So much confidence. You know, this was, after I did Warriors of Liberty City, I, I was very exhausted with the doc documentary form. And I think I even posted something on my social media of just how bored I was with doing documentaries at that point in my career. Warriors of Liberty City was a really hard production you know we were in miami it was 115 degrees with hurricanes 
Um, not only was it physically exhausting, but you know, I got started getting very political and it just got kind of ugly and I was just exhausted. And, and at that point, I just told my wife, I said, if I'm going to make a narrative film, it's, it has to be right now. Like, I, you know, I just got into this writing screenplays. I took a 10 year, you know, a 10 year sort of re- rerouted doing documentaries, which I love and I will, will do more documentaries. But I just felt like now is the time if I'm going to do it, you know, I want to sit down and take the next year and write, finish, write this script and, and try and get it made. And that's what I did. I, you know, I, I, every day it was my full-time job and I was back in front of my computer writing, which I just love, which is my favorite place to be in the whole world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had a script and um, was starting to send it out to a few producers. And at, at one point, um, I had gotten Alexander's assistant's email address to a friend and I cold emailed Alexander's assistant and, you know. Wow, but, that's pretty gutsy. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, like I said, I'm always the guy that's sticking my nose in there, right? Yeah. Just told him, like, I'm from the Midwest and I'm a huge fan. I'm writing my first script and, you know, just sent it, whatever, hit send and didn't expect a reply. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, you know, one day, um, God, this is three or four months later, I'm on a hike in Los Angeles and my phone rings and it's this unknown number and I figure it's, you know, probably a bill collector, right? So <laughs> I figured, oh, whatever, I'll answer it, I guess, just see what they want. And uh, it's Alexander calling me from Greece and he says, you know, I just read your script and I think it's fantastic and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in directing it. I know you want to direct it. I'm not much of a producer. And so after that, we just really connected. You know, I just think that he's brilliant and funny. And I think we just connected on like a personal level, um, just our love for films and, you know, wanting to tell earnest stories in the Midwest and feeling like, you know, that part of the country is a little misunderstood. And yeah, and eventually he had to take on another project. And, and he's the one that put, put me in touch with Albert Bert, Berger and Ron Yerksa, who produced Election and produced Nebraska. And right. after that, it was kind of off. We were, you know, we, I think we went out for like, we not, went out to Richard and I think in like six months we were financed and uh, shot the film last summer. Man, producer royalty. I mean, he just kind No, of, oh. God, you really, you, and, and Albert and Ron, you know, those guys, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with their work. They did Cold Mountain. They produced Little Miss Sunshine. Mm-hmm. You yeah. really, really start to understand what makes a great producer, which is, yeah. I think for a lot of filmmakers, is like this gray area of like, you know, every producer has like a different hat that they wear. And these guys, man, they're so calm. And, the, you know, they're so, they, they just inspire so much confidence in the director. and understand the role of the director and understand their role as producers and know how to, when to push and when to pull and when to never once though, never once did they ever say to me, Hey kid, we've been doing this for 30 years. Why don't you take our note? Right. Not a single time do they yeah. ever hold that over my head or try and use it as leverage to get a note in or to make a, you know, they let me make mistakes and, and you realize why they're so revered, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that the the lack of ego lends itself to really great collaboration. And, and how can you have a film 
how can you pull off a project like this without great synergistic collaboration as opposed to some Hollywood producer saying, we have to completely change the ending. This isn't going to work. We tested it with audiences, that type right. of approach, you know? Yeah. No, they, they, we, everybody was rowing in the same direction. I wanted to make the same movie. You know, that helps. <laughs> yeah. That, that relieves a lot of tension right there. But um, I wish I could have been a, a fly in the air as you got that call from Alexander Payne on a hike to see I mean, what your reaction remember, was. <laughs> I remember calling my wife and just saying, I just got a phone call from Alexander Payne. And she said, what? <laughs> and I said, yeah, he read my script and I think he wants to direct it. And she said, what? <laughs> I said, yeah, I know, right? Um, but I remember walking down the hill and thinking, I think this, I think this changes things. Yeah. It definitely a game you know what I mean? Like I think <laughs> yeah. this definitely maybe changes things because I think into that point I was sending the script out and you'd be surprised that script, you know, it, it got a lot of really positive feedback, very positive feedback, but it also had a few people that were like, is this green book? Is this black and white two hander? Right. I don't know. It's really funny. But like, I don't know about the ending and uh -huh. I don't know, like who, who's going to get, what's the audience for this or whatever. But then when he read it, it was like, I love this. I was mm. like, oh, it is good. Okay. I thought it might be, you know. Talk about validation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And now I feel so much more confident that I can, you know, I, I can read something and, and, and know. But, you know, that was a couple of years ago and, I, you know, I was still trying to figure out, find my voice and find out if I was any good at this, because I was, a, I was used to always joke, you know, failed screenwriters make that great documentary filmmakers, but I don't know, maybe it's the opposite now. So how did the talent be, uh, get brought in uh, Jenkins and McGee and, and O'Neill and Allison Tolman? Well, Richard, um, Richard was always our first choice. I just always, always, revered him as an actor i just even six feet under i remember just thinking god damn i love all the scenes that he's in mm -hmm. <laughs> and then i remember at one point i rewatched the visitor and i thought yeah that's the guy that's mm -hmm. that's him um the shape of water had come out and and um i gotta give you you know i gotta give his agent credit she i sent it to her Rhonda price she read it that day he read it that night he got back to me the next day and said, I want to do this movie. Oh. It was that fast. And we talked. And again, he's a guy from Illinois. We started, we didn't talk about the movie, didn't talk about the script. We talked about ourselves and where we were from. And he's from a little place in, you know, De DeKalb, Illinois. And um, just connected on a personal level. And, and, and uh, even the first few months didn't talk about the character, really talked about other things and um he was i told him this the other day when we were uh, texting or calling i can't remember text, uh, emailing and i just uh told him just how lucky i i felt to have him to go through this f experience with him you know mm -hmm. he was so kind he was such a leader you know he never degraded me he never made me feel like this was my first film he totally trusted me um 
wanted to make the same film. He was just sort of like this steadfast. Um, it's interesting when you're you're making your when you're making your first film sucks because you can never you can't point to a film and just say trust me guys I've done this before it's going to be okay <laughs> so no everyone's nervous right because yeah. you're just an unknown right when you have your lead actor in lockstep with you everybody else relaxes right you're like oh Andrew and Richard seem to be working this is working out for them everyone else kind of felt good. Yeah. Know? Well, yeah. I mean, they, that had to give them confidence with Jenkins, these multiple Academy Award nominations and Payne, Academy Award winner, just having the street cred of those folks around you to back you up had to be amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's what it's exactly what it's all about. I don't, I don't know if, you know, Ed O'Neill told me I'm only doing this movie because Richard's in it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm pretty sure Richard said Richard's agent. I remember at some point thinking, you know, Albert and Ron are doing this. Albert Berger and Ron York say you're going to be in good hands. It's not right. going to be, you know, it's not, it'll be a smooth ship. Um, Shane Paul McGee, I tell you, there, I don't think there was an actor in LA that didn't want that part. Mm. If that was that, you know, that age and, and there was a lot of people came in and, uh, he won that role. Uh, he grabbed that role and I was like kind of in denial about how good he was. Like I kept thinking it was like between him and a couple other larger, bigger name actors. And I kept thinking, yeah, but this guy, you know, and this guy, and then my producer just kept saying, yeah, but this kid's really good, you know? And I, I was kind of like fighting it, you know, because I, I wanted somebody that who's who I recognize their work, you know, mm-hmm. like, and I can point to again. It's like going and pointing to it. I was like, well, they've done this before, you know. Um, and then at one point, they just said, just watch his tape again. And I watched it, and I, I just with no pretense, and I just thought this kid is—he's the best out of all the tapes, right? But does he just audition well? You know, I don't know any of this. And um, it was totally the right call. And I think, I think he is going to be a superstar. Um, yeah. I, he's just has this charisma. And it was so funny directing him and then directing Richard. It couldn't be more different actors to direct. But both of them are very nuanced, though. Very nuanced, but just in the way they take direction, I guess. Um, yeah. And then, you know, we got really lucky with some of the, you know, Burgundy Baker was in Chicago. She's from Chicago and had done The Shy. She's just an unbelievable actress. I watched literally 20 seconds of her audition tape and I was like, yeah, that's her. (laughs) Divine Joy Randolph, I loved her and I met with her and I wanted her to do the movie so badly and that she agreed to do the movie was like, oh God, she was so fun on set and she is unbelievable unbelievable actress divide i mean she's she's so good and then allison tolman you know from emergence came on really late she's from chicago you know and you know it's kind of this midwest thing kept happening right like ed o'neill's from youngstown and was like oh i I totally get this town and like allison was like from chicago and was like oh well i'll I'll come back to Chicago for a week and shoot. And Richard was from Chicago and was like, Oh, it's shooting in Chicago during the summer. I don't know if we would have shot it. If we would have shot it in like Toronto, I think like half of our cast wouldn't have been in the movie. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. Cause my, 
my connection or my frame of reference for Allison is Fargo. Yeah, um, the television yeah. series, which is Midwestern, obviously, and and uh, yeah. and all of these characters just have that vibe about yeah. them, and uh, and and they're all nuanced, and that's why when I was looking at the fact that it was a, categorized as a comedy, um, where I was kind of like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is a comedy, but is it's it? it's yeah. so subtle sometimes, and also so tragic too. So you have this. Um, you really can't define it. It doesn't fit neatly in the in the comedy box. That's you know? interesting you said that. I remember like some writer was like, it's a tragic comedy or like a serial comedy. And I was like, I don't even know what that, what is that? Did I make <laughs> something that I don't even know what it is? You know, it's right. not a dark comedy. No, um, it is I don't know if it's a dramatic comedy, a serial comedy, I don't know, whatever. It's, you know, I love, I love Alexander's ability to control tone mm-hmm. and to go from like, laugh out loud funny you know like i'm thinking of sideways when paul you know when paul thomas anderson drives his car into a tree you know versus the next scene he's like dropping him off at his house and it's kind of it's sad you know i mean i love that range that he has in his movies where you mm-hmm. can you know i think people go to movies because they want to feel something I, i've always felt that and you always will like i will always push for like deep pathos in my movie where like you go there and you feel something right you laugh and i think that a lot of the dramatic comedies that i saw that i didn't like were like they're not dramatic and they're not comedic either like mm-hmm. they're not funny and they're also not very dramatic and what i wanted to do was make sure it was like funny right like them playing shuffleboard with the meat patties right it's like what is this <laughs> and then also like deep moments of sadness you know um alexander yeah he he was a great i mean great he led me in that that whole thing of like he he really mentored me in like my path of like how to direct a set yeah I can mm-hmm. totally see it now. Now that I know Alexander Payne is, is involved, I can see it because the the comedic moments that you see in like The Descendants and About Schmidt uh, with his films are it's it's the same type of vibe. You you have this um, these moments of of, of sadness, um, you know, where for instance uh, Schmidt you know loses his wife, you know, and it's it's a really awful loss, and you feel it. But then he's writing these letters to to his right <laughs> dear tra- throwing all her stuff up. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> or yeah, the next scene I'm trying to think when he loses his wife, you know, he's like spreading the cream on his face, crying about it. And you're like, is this right. funny or sad? <laughs> or like, what is this? You know? Yeah. So that's a great what what a great mentor or inspiration to have someone like Alexander Payne, but also, you know, carving your own path with um, you know, it's going from the documentary world into narrative and what a fantastic first narrative film the producers did they help you with budget issues because i'm wondering as a first time narrative filmmaker um how you were budgeting for time and the cost of the the set which you transformed this i understand this falafel restaurant into this chicken and yeah. fish shack and like how did you how did you figure it all out and who did you get help from well, when you don't have much money, it's pretty easy because um, you don't have any money to budget. No, I'm joking. I mean, <laughs> we actually had a decent budget on this movie. I shouldn't. I shouldn't joke about it. I was. I was. I was lucky to have a, a, a decent sized budget. Um, I think that one of the things that I really learned 
was that these the, the budgets are really a reflection of um, your priorities, you know, and, and so a lot of it was talking about and me expressing to them and them understanding it being my first film. And, you know, every film has their own challenges of what was the biggest challenge for this film. You know, the entire movie was shot in 20 days, which I remember saying that at Sundance and there was like this gasp from the audience of like, what? And I guess one thing that I, one thing working for us is that I wrote it very contained for a reason. Right. I, I wanted to write something that I could make. My original idea was I was going to make this movie for $50,000 with my friends. And so I wanted to write something that wasn't a lot of locations and there's not car chases. And then, you know, it was really contained into something that was like manageable for me on my first time directing. And I think that that was really important was like putting some kind of limits on myself and some barriers of like, okay, most of it takes place in one location. That was one thing that, that made the whole process much easier for me on my first film. And then I knew that I knew that the movie would live or die on, um, on the performances, mm. you know, and I, I knew that if I was rushed, if I didn't have time to, to get the comedy and the timing and the pacing and the performances I need, we really had no chance. And I think that the thing I'm most proud of, of the film is the performances by the actors. I feel um, so confident in being able, to, I love directing actors and I was so nervous to direct actors um, when I went into it and realized I really love it. I know there's a lot of directors that I kind of don't really love directing actors. And I talked to a director, a friend of mine who will remind, remain nameless. I was like, oh, I fucking hate direct. I hate actors. It's so <laughs> annoying. I love actors. Yeah. I really love directing actors. And as I know some directors, they love cameras and lenses and, you know, that's their thing. And that's their, their, for me, I really love, you know, working, um, working with the performances, I wanted to make sure I had enough time with my actors. We never felt rushed. You know, we never felt like, oh, we can't do another take because we got to go, go, go. I think every, we came in under budget. We didn't, I think we went into overtime one day. Um, but I think it was really about the producers understanding what the challenges were going to be for me as a first time filmmaker. And then really putting me in a position where I wasn't streaming, swimming upstream, you know. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of that, the foundation of that was in the writing, which was like, the script fundamentally worked. So I wasn't, there weren't any moments where I was like, on set, and you have that feeling where you're just, it's not working. And, and it, it's just broken. And I felt like the writing was really airtight and I knew I wanted to accomplish and I'd spent a lot of time on that script. And so when I got time to shoot it, I was prepared. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of different factors. That's, it's interesting that you wrote it with that in mind to make it yourself, or at least if you weren't going to make it yourself, have it more likely to be considered because it's not a huge budget film. Uh, because I, I was interviewing an, a screenwriter named Bob Sines and he He's written a bunch of stuff, but his most recent film is out on Amazon. It's called Extracurricular Activities. And he's, he's a working screenwriter, and he wrote a book called That's Not the Way It Works. 
And that's what I was interviewing him about. But his main advice to new screenwriters is to limit the number of locations, limit the number of speaking characters. Uh, if you have a character, you know, in a scene, make sure they're not speaking unless it's absolutely necessary because right. boom, cha-ching, it adds to the, the cost of the budget. And now that I look back on your film, it makes a lot of sense. It's all one location except for a few other scenes. I would imagine the, uh, the car scene, which I won't give away, but there's, uh, there's a car scene that had to be fairly expensive in terms of stunt coordination and perhaps... Uh, it really wasn't. It wasn't? No. Okay. It, it really wasn't. It was just two guys with a rope and a door you know, held on by some wood. Yeah, we won't give it away, but no, that was not... I was, I mean, the, doing the, we had a day where we had to do like trailer work in the car where they're driving around, which was um, a learning experience. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I would imagine, though, if you're directing this thing and you have all these experienced producers, that whatever problem solving needs to be done, you have the resources right there, maybe not on set, but at least at your disposal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that. Um, yeah, I think that those guys, right, that's exactly right. I mean, one of the things that we got really, a couple of things we got really lucky on. One, we shot in, we decided to shoot the film in Chicago because of the tax incentive. And the time that we shot it was sort of at the end of summer where we had this, all the crew members had, were done working on television for the year. And so we had an incredible crew. I mean, the stuff, you know, the, almost all my crew shot the new season of Fargo. You know, and here they are shooting this tiny rinky-dink indie film, right? Wow. And the best crew, I've, best crew I could ever ask for. And I will try and shoot all my movies in Chicago because, one, if you will notice, the day players, the actors in the, in the, in the movie are fantastic. Mm -hmm. Whether it's the woman that comes with the cheeseburger or the guy that plays his brother or, you know, the guy that buys the, sells the car to him. I mean, it's a really great acting town there's just a lot of great actors in that town that we had mm. to choose from which made it very very easy um and the local casting director there was unbelievable she was wonderful um but the crew you know the crew was such an experienced crew and they were you know really rowing in the right direction and, and um you know i think a lot of it things come together in a way that you know i don't know if we shoot that film in Nashville or, or circumstances are different, but I think that the, um, the producers just made a lot of smart decisions. You know, they, 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 they've done it enough to know, you know, like just the decision to shoot in Chicago, you know, that just made, like I said, like, I don't even know if Richard does the movie if we're not shooting in Chicago, you mm. know, um, they just really have a, a good grip on things. That, so things don't become a problem. You know, there, there was, very few times on set that we'd be like, oh God, this is, this is totally fucked. And you know, what are we going to do? We don't have anything to shoot today. Um, yeah, it was a very enjoyable experience making the film, which is rare. I think, you know, there's certainly days I was you know, exhausted and, you know, you're sitting in the rain and it's, you know, it's not totally working, but, uh, you know, when I got back to LA and we started editing that, there was a lot of good stuff to choose from, you know, I mean. So once you have that final cut and you're satisfied with the final product, 
what is, I mean, and you don't have distribution yet, obviously, because this is an independent film, uh, independently financed, it sounds like. Uh, but what is the process for determining what festivals to, well, first of all, do you want to go with the festival route or not? Is that even an option for independent filmmakers or do you have to go that route? And if you do, what f festivals do you focus on and why? Well, you got to go to a festival to sell your movie. Um, it's just the way it's done just because uh, just the way it works in terms of leveraging and you're only showing it once and it's competitive and that's the way you drive up market prices. Um, you know, uh, a lot of this has to do with the calendar and when you finish your film, you know, like if you finish at a certain time of year, you're looking at Toronto or Telluride or, you know, something like that. I and mean, we finished and it was, you know, Sundance was right there. <laughs> so yeah. it was an easy choice. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, you, you want to take it to a festival, but yeah, I, I, I think, uh, it was the, always, the plan was always to submit to Sundance and uh, I'm grateful that they liked the movie and that's what we had our premiere. So you finish late summer, you finish yeah. your edit, finish your editing by into September, maybe. Yeah, that's exactly right. September, maybe even into October. I think we got a late, late waiver and, um, you know, at that point it's all temp music and it's, you know, it's not the full, you know, has been color corrected or anything like that, but it's, it's starting to take shape and, um, yeah, and then it's like the worst experience of like you send it and you're just waiting, you know, you're just wait. Like, does anybody love me? I don't know. <laughs> I don't. Does anybody care? I don't care. I'm not, it's not going to be a big deal if I don't get it. Maybe, it's maybe good. Alexander's validation is all you need. Yeah, yeah. You, you know what? If this movie thing doesn't work out, then I can always go back and teach English, you right. know, or <laughs> yeah, I'll move back to Michigan and uh, you know teach driver's training. But um, yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like when you're as a filmmaker, you just have these highs and these lows, you know what I mean? I, I think like you have these moments I'm working on a script now or the characters like in that world where you like one minute you watch the movie in a rough cut and you're like, this is it. I'm so happy with it. And then you wake up the next day and you're hungover and you watch it and you're like, this is so embarrassing. No one's going to like this movie. I can't believe I have the audacity to even write movies. Like that feeling never goes away, you know? I remember I was talking to a friend of mine, Carol Bodie, who, who worked in industry. And she, I was talking about that. She said, I used to work for in Tom Cruise's office. And Tom Cruise is the most insecure human being you've ever met. He always thinks that every role is his last. He always thinks he's terrible. And, you know, but that's something that like kind of keeps, you know, it's like an illness that keeps you going, you know? Yeah. Well, you need that motivation somehow. Otherwise, <laughs> even if it's just panic and fear right you're gonna get complacent <laughs> if you don't so um do you have any projects other than your in progress screenplays that you're you know working on that are about to come out that you're excited about and you want to tell uh, Not, listeners about? i can really talk about you know i have a doc series a documentary that i've been working on for a really long time and uh i wrote my next film just went out to an actor but nothing i can really speak on concretely I see that Andrew Cohn is your handle on Instagram. Andrew P. Cohn, yeah. Oh, Andrew P. Cohn, excuse me. And your website is 734films.com? Yep, that's it. N named after my old, uh, my old stomping grounds in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Okay, great. Well, 
Andrew, it's been fantastic connecting with you and learning about your process. Uh, thank you so much for making time for us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Brian. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path. <laughs>